I want to greet you all in Jesus' name this morning. I usually have a few things I want to say related to the message or devotion or Sunday school and find if I let myself get sidetracked, I get half my time used up and wonder why the message doesn't seem to fit in the time anymore. I'd like to start right into the message. I titled the message, Guard Your Heart, the Breastplate of Righteousness. I want to consider before we look at the breastplate of righteousness and what all is tied up in that. I want to think about a theme in the book of Ephesians. I feel a little bit guilty about maybe misleading you somewhat as we've preached through the letter to the church at Ephesus that I oversimplified it and that I said that the great overarching theme of the book of Ephesians is the first half of the epistle, the first three chapters describing unsearchable riches, the wealth that's ours is we're in Christ. And then the second half of the book, the last three chapters, four, five, and six, describing the responsibility we have to walk worthy. And I described the central verse of the whole epistle, the physical center as well as the uh, theme verse of the epistle, is chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians, where Paul says, I therefore, looking back at the first three chapters, and the riches that he's describing in Christ. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. So we see him looking back at the wealth and then forward at the walk. There is also another theme running through the book of Ephesians. It complicates things a little, but as we look at the armor of God, if we ignore that theme, the armor of God just seems like a footnote stuck at the end and What in the world is all this stuff, this sword and this belt and this helmet? And what are we really being expected to do here when we take up this armor or put on this armor? Practically speaking, what is it? I want to just take a a minute and look at the theme of power in the book of Ephesians and the fact that the armor of God is the power of God in the child of God. That is the Holy Spirit of power of God Almighty within you, giving you power to walk worthy, holy living. About four years ago, the heaviest load ever transported on an American highway was moved 850 miles from California to Utah. What they hauled on a single load was a massive 800,000-pound generator. If they just split it up in pieces and they couldn't because then it would have been scrap metal, it would have taken 17 fully loaded tractor trailers to haul the weight. This was an impossible job assigned to this trucking company to move something this massive across regular old interstate highways, 850 miles. It took a massive application of power. And with that massive amount of power, the impossible became possible. Here's how they did it. They fashioned a 300-foot-long tractor-trailer rig. If you can picture that, that's six times as long as a regular tractor-trailer. It took 192 wheels and three specially built for the purpose Mac trucks, they called them Mac Titans. Each truck had 600 horsepower. 
They took one of these trucks and they put it up front and that truck was pulling. They took a truck and assigned it a place in the middle and that truck was pulling and pushing. Sorry, these peas are kind of ringing in my ears. Pulling and pushing in the middle. And the third truck was assigned the rear of this load and its job was to push. So 600 horsepower Mack Titan truck pulling, one pulling and pushing and one at the back pushing. And they got it done. The impossible was possible with a massive infusion of power. Okay, Ephesians, this theme of power in Ephesians is doing the same thing. And I don't think it's an accident. It's fascinating to me. I hope it isn't tedious to all of you. That power is at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the book of Ephesians. There's power in the front of Ephesians in chapter 1 in Paul's prayer starting in verse 15. But he gets down to verse 17 and 18 and tells us what he's praying about. It takes eight verses for him to express this prayer, but it comes down to three words. His prayer for the people of God is that they would know their power. Know their power. Verse 17 and 18. He uses the word know five times and he uses five different Greek words to do it. But you wouldn't miss it if you knew Greek. You'd hear the word over and over and over again. No, no, no. No, no. Five times. Verse 17. His prayer. For us, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of knowing and knowing in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your knowing being made knowledgeable that you may know hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Well, you can't miss it the way I read it. I didn't mistranslate any words. That was all valid. He wants us to know. So what does he want us to know? We get into verse 19 and 20. And the power comes up. The power. I'm going to read that. He uses five different Greek words for power. None of us are Greek speakers that I know of, but if we were, we would hear power ringing. Verse 19, that you would know the exceeding greatness of his power in us who believe according to the power of his mighty power, which he powered in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul's burden in Ephesians 1 is that we know the power. So we see power as that Mack Titan truck out front of the load pulling in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 3, the very center of the epistle. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Power comes up again. Paul says, Ephesians 3, verse 20, Now unto him able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. So what he's reminding us of here, two verses later, we're going to be begged that because of all the riches we have in Christ, that we walk worthy. That's coming up in two more verses. And before he asks us to do the impossible, the massive application of power, a Mac Titan stuck in the middle of the chapter, the middle of the epistle, pulling and pushing us towards seeing that the impossible is possible 
with a massive infusion of power. The word able in verse 20 is the word dunamis. It means power. That verse could be read, Now unto him God that is powerful to do what we ask or think. It's more than that. He can do all that we ask or think. It's more than that. He can do above all that we can ask or think. Still more than that. He can do abundantly above all that we ask or think and more than that. Exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that powers us. He's saying that that power that's beyond what we can even dream of is the same power that's working in us. I'll ask you this morning, do you feel powerful? It really doesn't matter how we feel. What matters is reality. And according to the Word of God, the power of Almighty God is working in us. So we see power out front pulling. We see power in the middle pulling and pushing. And we come to the armor of God in Ephesians 6. And we see power at the end of the epistle pushing and making the impossible possible. Chapter 6, verse 10. This passage on the armor of God. I want to talk about this as the last truck. Massive infusion of power, making the impossible possible. The impossible that children of God are asked to do is to walk worthy. That is, walk in holiness. Supernatural, beyond human ability, holiness. And it isn't impossible, and we don't have to shrug our shoulders, because God has applied a massive infusion of power. I'd like to read verse 10 to 17, and then just finish thinking about this third truck that's pushing at the end of the epistle. And understand that the armor of God is that power. He's drawing an illustration for us to show what it means that the Spirit of God in you gives you the resource of supernatural power. I'd like to read uh, Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 17. Would we stand for the reading of the Word of God? Paul writes, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Thank you. You can be seated. All right, well, I warned that there were uh, three Mac Titan trucks with unimaginable power, and we looked at one at the beginning of the epistle in Ephesians 1, one in the middle of the epistle at the end of Ephesians 3, and this last truck is applying power here 
in Ephesians 6. The passage on the armor of God, and I want to think about it as a power passage. We look here in this passage at verse 10, and we see Paul say, finally, my brethren, be strong. Here's another power word. It can be translated power. Be powerful and in the Lord and in the power of his power. Verse 11 and verse 13 both speak of power. That is the word able. I don't, Jay's here today, isn't he? I didn't look it up. Am I right that the word for power in Spanish is poder? Okay. The word, if I have this right, the word to be able, the verb to be able in Spanish is poder. We get our word power from that. So in verse 11, where it says that we're to put on this armor that we may be able to stand, it's saying powerful to stand. There's a world of difference between able and powerful, and I think able is kind of weak. If one of the trustees asked me to put a roof on this church by myself, I might be able to do that. That would be a stretch. Might be able. But if I told them I am powerful to do that, I don't think they'd sweat it. They would know he can do it and he's going to get it done. That's the difference between able and powerful. The word is dunamis. Verse 11. We're commanded to put on the armor of God that we, that ye may be powerful to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13, it comes up again. Take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be powerful to withstand in the evil day. All right, I don't know if I made my point that when we're talking about the armor of God, we're talking about the Christian's resource of power talking about the third Mack Titan 600 horsepower truck at the end of the epistle, pushing and making the impossible demands of the epistle possible. Humanly impossible demands are possible with enough power. We're in the process of building a hoop building at the farm and we're not builders, so... It's a little intimidating, makes you feel kind of small. I have a big building and a bunch of farmers trying to build it. We feel like we should have some experts, but we don't. We bought this building as a kit, and it's a steel building, and it was much bigger and much heavier than I expected. Tractor trailer came and unloaded in this massive pile of steel and hoops, uh, trusses, uh, purlins, hardware, um, Tarps, two enormous tarps for this building. These trusses are 65 feet wide and at their highest point in the building are 30 feet off the ground. And all that stuff was laying there and I was thinking, what do we have to put this building up? If I go up to my shop and look hard enough somewhere, I'll probably find my socket set. I got a, got a socket. Uh, height, 30 feet. That's higher than I thought. I, we have step ladders. How pathetic to have a farmer with a socket scent and a six-foot stepladder, and here's this building. It's enormous. It's too big. It's impossible. So what happens? I'm kind of discouraged, walk away. But another day I come down, and something's happened. Another tractor trailer came in and dropped off. A mighty telehandler. It's a big machine. It's a glorious machine. It extends up to 40 feet high, and it can lift four tons 40 feet high. 
all of a sudden, this pathetic farmer with his socket wrench and his stepladder is feeling pretty good. Now, we've got some resources here to get this job done. But the job isn't getting done. And the fact that the power is available has nothing to do with getting the job done. Eventually, we have to get on the machine, start it, put the hydraulics to work, and use the power. If we don't use the power, it's really worse than useless. It's, it's a blasphemy of that machine, sitting there with all its power doing nothing. My point is, when we talk about the armor of God, that we see the Spirit of God in you as that machine. And Paul is saying, you have all this impossible power in the Holy Spirit. But the call to take up the armor of God and put on the armor of God is the call to get on the machine and put it to work. And if you fail to do that, you are reduced as a child of God to having no more power than a pathetic man with a socket wrench and a stepladder. That's the difference that putting the armor of God on makes in the Christian. I think if I'd have asked you if you're a powerful people this morning, you'd have probably said, you know the right answer, right? In Christ, yes, powerful. But then we get out there and we get faced with challenges and we're wrestling against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And, oh, woe is me, my strength indeed is small. Child of weakness. I'm not sure that's really a scriptural term. If you're a child of God, you are not a child of weakness. Sorry if, if that's your favorite hymn. So the message of the book of Ephesians is that our call is to walk worthy and that we have the resources to do it. And right here in the armor of God, we're being told to get on the machine and put it to work. Quit trying to do the impossible with a socket wrench and a stepladder. All right, the last message we considered the first weapon in the Christian armor, and that is the belt of truth. It was a powerful foundation. I made the point that the belt, the wide leather battle belt of the Roman soldier was the foundation of all the other armor. The sword hangs on it. The breastplate will latch to it. The heavy shield would be hooked to it to bear the weight. Everything builds off of that battle belt of truth, the foundation of the Christian soldier's armor, as is truth, the foundation of our faith. This message, we have the next powerful piece of weaponry for the Christian soldier, and that is the belt, the breastplate of righteousness. I want to consider the breastplate of righteousness. Before I get into it, I want to think back to the belt of truth and look ahead to the breastplate of righteousness and ask you, is this talking about a spiritualized truth and a spiritualized righteousness? That is, is it talking about a belt of truth that is God's truth? And thank God for that. And we have power because God's truth is true. Or is it talking about our personal, everyday, practical truthfulness? I'll let that hang a minute, but don't forget it. And think about righteousness. Are we talking about Christ's? Glorious, perfect righteousness. Or are we talking about our humdrum everyday attempts to walk in obedient holiness? Christ's righteousness or our practical righteousness? Which is it? 
I would say the answer to both of those questions, which is it, is yes. That is, it's both. God's truth and our truthfulness. Christ's righteousness and our obedient, holy walk. Practical righteousness. I want to make that point before I start, because if you have a problem with that, you'll probably have a problem with the rest of the message. I think there's greater danger as we look at the armor of God in over-spiritualizing it than over, can I say, practicalizing it. There's very little danger we'll make the armor of God too practical, so I think we should focus on that. All right, I want to talk about the breastplate of righteousness, and I want to think about breastplates. I didn't look real close when everyone came in, but I'm just betting there's probably very few breastplates fastened on us this morning. What is a breastplate? I don't know that I've, I know I've never worn one. I'm not sure I've ever seen one other than pictures. A breastplate is a tough sleeveless piece of armor and it guards the soldier's torso above the belt. If you're a poor soldier, your breastplate is leather and leather's kind of a pathetic thing to stop fiery darts and swords of the enemy. So you would, Line it with overlapping rows of something hard. And if you're poor, you might have access to animal hoofs or pieces of animal bone. That's the poor man's breastplate. If you were rich and powerful, which Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesians convincing us that we are, you would have a solid one-piece metal breastplate. It would be hammered thin, And it would be well fitted to your torso. It would precisely fit above the belt, leaving no gap, which would be deadly. It would clamp to the belt and it would be hammered thin so it was light. And it would be strong. Swords do not cut through and fiery darts do not penetrate a metal breastplate. Light, comfortable and impenetrable. The Greeks called the soldier's breastplate a heart protector. Literally, they called it a heart protector, the most vital organ. You're going to defend one organ. Put your best efforts into defending the heart. Proverbs 4 tells us, guard your heart. And it's talking about a different context, but guard your heart with all diligence. Out of it are the issues of life. All right. So we want to think about the breastplate of righteousness. We thought about the breastplate. Let's talk about righteousness. Is everyone tuning out and going to sleep? Is this insulting? Too basic of a topic, righteousness? We pretty well got that. We'll save that for the six-year-olds. Sunday school class, cut out a picture and color it. Righteousness. It's a familiar word, but I'm not sure that we're as handy with it as we should be. It's kind of a church word. On Sunday morning, righteousness sounds good, but you don't talk about it much Monday through Saturday. It doesn't come up a lot. Righteousness comes from the root word of right. Well, right off the bat, you wonder, why is right spelled the way it is? I don't have my board up here. I'd write on it. The word right, R-I-G-H-T. What's with the G-H? Well, The word comes from the Latin, and the Latin word used the G-H. It's rectus, rect, 
We know rectangle. We know someone standing up is erect. They're right. A rectangle has four right angles. Rect is right. Rectus is righteous. Synonyms for the word righteous. Just, good, straight, proper, fitting, upright, correct. Definition for righteousness. Conforming to an external standard. Does that fit your understanding of righteousness? We don't define righteousness, God does. External standard. Righteousness is everything God commands, everything he demands, and everything he approves. I like that because it's short, simple. No $20 words there. Righteousness is all God commands, all he demands, and all he approves. Sometimes we learn about a word by discussing its opposite. What would you say is the opposite of righteousness? Maybe there's a couple answers there. I'm going to say the opposite of righteousness is sin. Sin is defined literally by missing the mark. Righteousness is hitting the mark. You make a bullseye. That's righteous. We know the word sin. We know the word righteous. I find it interesting that we use the word sin far more than we do the word righteous. Two sides of the same coin. Sin and righteousness. We seem to talk a lot about sin. We're not obsessed with righteousness. I'm sure we hold it in esteem, but I want to go on. One more definition of righteousness. Come back to how much esteem we hold righteousness in. Another definition for righteousness. Um, Leroy said that we're probably in the most blessed time in all of history. And I might agree with that if we're talking about material wealth, prosperity, that kind of thing. But as far as godliness and fear of God in the general society, I actually don't think we're living in the most blessed time in history. I don't know when the most uh, God-honoring time would have been, say, even in the history of this country. But a couple hundred years ago, there was a lot more knowledge of and fear of God. I'm not going to try to say that that was kingdom a kingdom gospel necessarily, but if you look up the word righteous in Webster's Dictionary, you'd get kind of an unimpressive definition. But if you had a 200-year-old Webster's Dictionary, which I don't have, but I have access to one on the computer, look at a 200-year-old Webster's Dictionary, the 1813 edition, from a more God-fearing, more God-aware, more religious time, for what all that's worth. Here's what it says in Webster's for righteousness. Being morally upright without guilt or sin. First definition, that's a good one. It doesn't stop there. It goes on and gives the second definition. Being in accordance with virtue and morality. The third definition, morally justifiable. The fourth definition, surprise me, would you expect to see this in a secular dictionary? Fourth definition for righteousness, Christ-likeness. Surprising what we see in a secular dictionary 200 years ago. Then there's a note that goes on after these four definitions. Webster puts a note and says, note, righteousness as used in scripture and theology, where it chiefly occurs, 
is nearly synonymous with holiness. I found that interesting. Secular dictionary understands that righteousness and holiness are practically the same thing. Back to Bible times. Beyond New Testament times, Old Testament, the Jews were mocked for their deity because the deity that they worshipped was unlike any deity that had ever been proposed before. This deity claimed to be righteous and he demanded of his worshipers that they be righteous. We kind of take that for granted. That's the only God we've ever known. But that's unique in the whole pantheon of all the gods that all pagans and polytheistic people have worshipped. A righteous God that demands righteousness from his worshipers. That is not unusual. It's unique. The Jews had a tremendous regard for righteousness. They would speak of sin, but righteousness would be on their tongues continually, every day, not just on the Sabbath. Towering regard. They were even obsessed by righteousness. If it's possible to go too far with practical righteousness, I would say Old Testament Jews may have accomplished that. They spoke of righteousness constantly. So, given that, would you expect the Word of God to be saturated with the word righteous righteousness. It is. In Hebrew, the word is sadek. In Greek, it's dikaios. Those two words as roots appear 1,043 times in the word of God. That's a pile. I've looked up a lot of words on low, whatever, power Bible software, I don't believe I've ever had a word that appeared more than a thousand times. And I got a warning, came back with my search. My computer warned me after I searched for righteousness. That doesn't happen just all the time. Here's what it said. I thought this was, I don't know. I stared at it. Here's what my computer said after I searched for all the roots of righteousness. Warning. Your word search has returned an excessive number of results. What would you like to do? Well, that's kind of creepy. (laughs) My computer's talking to me like a person. Excessive number of results for righteousness. What would I like to do? I thought about that. I don't think it was waiting for an answer, but if I had to answer the computer, what are you going to do if the word of God is saturated with 1,043 occurrences of righteous and its all its roots. I'd say the right thing to do is pay careful attention to righteousness. Want to do that with the little bit of time we have remaining. I want to consider thinking about righteousness. The amplified version of the Bible is a is a commentary and I don't mean to make too much of it, but this is how the amplified Bible translates this verse about the breastplate of righteousness. Here's how it, how it says. Stand, having put on the breastplate of integrity and moral rectitude and right standing with God. Okay, that's a lot of words, and some of them are kind of scary words. But I want to notice here that the Amplified captures something that we might miss. In breastplate of righteousness, we have the question, well, is that my righteousness or Christ's? According to the Amplified, they want to say what I would like to say, that it's both. 
stand having put on the breastplate of personal integrity, personal moral rectitude, and right standing with God. So we're looking at two different levels of righteousness, Christ's righteousness and our righteousness. We're called to put on both. Two dimensions here of righteousness. So right standing with God is a little tough. I wanted to come up with some words that were reasonable about what's meant by right standing with God, but they're all theological, technical, complicated words. So I'm just going to give them to you. I didn't come up with them. I'd love to hear your better words. But speaking of our right standing with God, the breastplate of righteousness, putting it on, our right standing with God, imputed righteousness, I think we kind of know that. That is righteousness credited to us that we didn't earn. Imputed righteousness. Technical righteousness. Technically, I'm righteous in the sight of God. Positional righteousness. That is Ephesians 2, verse 7. It says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. That is, we're not only fit for heaven, we're fit for the throne room of heaven. Because we're in Christ. Not only fit for the throne room of heaven, but fit to sit in the throne room of heaven. No one sits in the presence of royalty except for royalty. Positional righteousness. Forensic righteousness. Another terrible word, I'm sorry. It just means righteousness that you'd get in a courtroom. That is, if a judge stands up and thumps on the table and says, you are righteous, that's forensic righteousness. He declared it. It's so. Whether it's so or not, now it's so. Because he has authority in that courtroom and he says you're righteous. Judicial righteousness. The same idea. It's God having the authority to declare us righteous in our unrighteousness. And he's done that. He's made that righteousness available. We already talked about 2 Corinthians 5.21 a number of times in the Sunday school class. I was glad for that. He hath made him, he God, hath made Christ who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Basically, God stood up in his own courtroom and thumped the table and said, you are righteous as you come to him through faith in Christ. Righteous because God says so. Okay, that's right standing with God. That is part of the breastplate, but it's not the whole thing because there's also the right living part of the righteousness. These two dimensions, right standing with God and right living with our fellow man, come together in 1 John 3. 1 John 3 verse 7 is kind of baffling to me, at least the way it's worded, but I think it helps us understand that the breastplate of righteousness has two dimensions. Not one, but two. Right standing with God and right living. Listen to 1 John 3, verse 7, and think about personal righteousness and positional righteousness. John says, Little children, let no man despise, deceive you. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Now, if you're like, me, that's one of those verses that you recognize and maybe you can even quote and smile and say amen and have no idea what it's saying. Maybe it's just me. But I think what it's saying here is there's two dimensions to righteousness. 
There's positional righteousness where God commands by divine command, you are righteous because of my son. And the righteousness that follows is walking in practical righteousness. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So, breastplate of righteousness having two components, positional righteousness and personal righteousness. There is a third righteousness. I don't know if you've ever heard would be most of your blood ancestors were called by the mocking term heaven stormers. Familiar with that term? I don't know it in German. I imagine that's what it was, but heaven stormers. The accusation was unfounded, but it was made that when you expect holy living from a child of God, you're trying to add to Christ's righteousness. Somehow his blood is less worthy because it needs some of your hard work to make up for where it falls short. So these heaven stormers were told they were gathering up this battering ram of good works. They were doing these good deeds and they were living good lives. And then eventually they could go to the gates of heaven with their battering ram and level it against it and charge and blow open the gates of heaven. And if somehow God was set against that gate and trying to hold it, there's just so much worth to all these works of righteousness that God himself couldn't hold them out of heaven. Okay, I hope you're not taking notes, writing that down. Like I said, that was true doctrine. That was, that was the mockery that was made of people that wanted to walk in obedience to the scriptures. They wanted to be disciples. They wanted to be imitators of God. They wanted to glorify God with holy lives. They were accused of self-righteousness. That is a righteousness that demands of God to be led into heaven. Charles Spurgeon said this about self-righteousness, comparing self-righteousness to the positional righteousness and practical righteousness. The greatest enemy of man's souls is a self-righteous spirit because it drives men to look to themselves for salvation. I think that's the definition of self-righteousness and it's no righteousness at all. Self-righteousness drives men to look to themselves for salvation. The prayer of the self-righteous is not the shame-faced, breast-smiting prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner, but the proud, arrogant prayer, I thank thee that I am not like other men. Self-righteousness. I don't mean to beat on President Trump. Probably seems like I do, but I would have kept my mouth shut about him until I read that he had professed a new birth experience and was a child of God. And I feel entitled to evaluate the things he says in light of that. So forgive me, I'm not trying to be political here and I'm not trying to stand up for Democrats over however that would be misperceived. Thinking about self-righteousness and the snare that it is, Spurgeon says the greatest enemy to the Christian soul, self-righteousness. Do we look around and say, well, that's not our problem. Whatever our problems are, it's not self-righteousness. Charles Spurgeon was here. He would say you're deceiving yourself. It is a problem. I have to be aware of it. 
And I think we see it almost comically in this discussion about Christianity that a business magazine had with Donald Trump. Here's some quotes from him. This was just before the election when he was elected president. He said this, quote, I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. Well, so far, I think we could live with that. But he goes on and says, I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. In fact, I try to do nothing that is bad. Okay, he stepped over a line here, declaring himself as good. He was asked, has he ever asked God for forgiveness? Here's his answer. I'm not sure I have, Trump said when asked if he ever asked God for forgiveness. I'll stop there and say, if you've asked God for forgiveness, you know it. And if you're not sure, I promise you, you haven't. He says, I'm not sure I've asked God for forgiveness. I just go on and try to do a better job. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. No, I don't. Self-righteousness. I am good. If I do something wrong, I'll try to make it right. Don't bring God into that picture. He goes on to say, having not asked for forgiveness doesn't make him feel disqualified for communion. He said he does take communion. And when I drink my little wine and have my little cracker, I suppose that's a form of asking for forgiveness. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, someone has said, is both Satan's greatest deception and man's greatest blasphemy against Christ. If you want to not commit the greatest possible blasphemy against Christ, don't practice self-righteousness. So that person can save himself with holy living. That's what self-righteousness gospel would say. You don't need Christ. Christ suffered and died for nothing. Problem is, if you're self-righteous, you can't repent. Because you have nothing to repent of and no one to repent to. All right, the breastplate of righteousness is impenetrable. A sword and a fiery dart is ineffective against it when it's on and when it's made of the right material. The Romans and the Greeks wore these um, brass breastplates. Now, brass breastplates were an alloy, two metals melted together. The metals were copper and tin. Now, if you were pathetic enough to go into battle with a copper breastplate, you're a goner because that will not stop an arrow or a sword. And if you went out with a tin breastplate, you're a goner because that will not stop a sword or an arrow. But alloyed together, they're strong and they're complete and they're effective. The Greeks and the Romans wore brass breastplates. They were an alloy. Very dangerous if your breastplate is deficient. If it's inadequate to stand up to the assaults of Satan, then you're in trouble because you're deceived into thinking you're safe and you have a breastplate on when the breastplate you have is defective. It needs to be a combination. Christ's righteousness, giving the access to the power that lets you walk in personal righteousness. And if you don't have that, either one of those two, you're like the breastplate with tin or copper. It looks good and it feels good, But when the time of testing comes, it will fail. It's weak. 
Speaking of a being deceived into thinking a breastplate is strong when it's not. I don't want to betray the fact that I read too much news. But a year ago, maybe you read this story too. I read the story of a man that was killed. He was shot to death by his girlfriend, two 20-year-olds in uh, Minnesota. She took a 50 caliber Golden Eagle pistol and leveled it at her boyfriend while filming for a YouTube video. They wanted to be famous. Now, he didn't have a death wish. He wanted to live. He wanted to be famous and live. Turned out he was famous and died. Okay, they used an inch and a half thick book and they had tested it. Somehow it had stopped a bullet before, but it didn't stop a bullet this time. He put this book in front of his chest. He thought he had a breastplate that would protect him and save him, and he was deceived. She shot him with that gun. It went into his chest, and he died instantly. His heart protector was no protector at all. It was deficient. I don't mean to make too much of that, other than the idea that we can think we're covered and be surprised when we're not. The breastplate has to be an alloy to be strong. Has to have God's righteousness come to God through faith in Christ and we're credited with his righteousness. But we also then are charged with the responsibility and given the power through the Spirit to go on and walk in practical righteousness. And if we're not doing that, that's not saying that Christ's blood alone won't deliver us, but faith without works is dead. And positional righteousness without practical righteousness is deceptive. It looks like a breastplate. I would have really liked to look at Zechariah 3, but I'm going to spare you. If you're taking notes, look at Zechariah 3, verse 1 to 7 where Joshua, the high priest, the most personally holy, qualified man on the face of the earth, the high priest of God's people, was described as standing with a filthy garment before God. And Satan was standing next to him. And it says Satan was Sataning him. The accuser was accusing him. In Hebrew, it reads Satan was Sataning him. Look at his filthy garment. So here's this high priest carrying out his high priestly duties to the best of his ability in the flesh, trying to please God. And as he comes before God, not with his sins smeared on his filthy garment, but with his righteousnesses as filthy rags, defiling and disgraceful before God, stands before God and God sees that filth and changes that robe for a robe of righteousness. That is God's righteousness. That's the first part of that alloy. And the question then is, what did God do with that filthy robe? He took it off the high priest. He put a fair robe and a fair mitre on him and made him fit to stand before God in God's righteousness. What's he going to do with this filthy robe? It's stinking up the throne room of heaven. What he should do is take it out and burn it. It's a disgrace. But he hung it on Christ. He put that filthy, disgraceful, disqualifying, defiled garment of the best that man could offer God on his own son. 
and took his son's garment of righteousness and made the high priest Joshua in that account fit to stand in the courts of heaven, it says. That's the new birth. We should listen to Peter's sobering warning in 1 Peter 3, where he says, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. All the people on this planet are divided into two classes. There's the righteous that have authority to wear the breastplate of righteousness. And there's the unrighteous. And there's no middle ground. And they're the wicked and they're the ones that do evil. And I would have thought if the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, that God just turns his back on the lost sinner. That's what I would do. They're disgusting, disgraceful. But it's worse than that. It says if you're a lost sinner, if you're in your sins, if you're separated from God, God not only doesn't have his eyes on you and his ears open to your prayers, he's against you. Holy God is angry and offended. As we would attempt to stand before him in self-righteousness, or as a lost sinner with no righteousness to claim. It says in Proverbs that the plowing of the wicked, the plowing of the wicked is sin. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. As an unconverted person, and you want to get a little favor with God, I'm not going to do the whole Christianity thing, but just get a little favor with God. I'm going to go over to my widow's place across the street. She's got a garden and she can't do it herself. I'm going to rototill over there. That's the best you can do before a holy God apart from Christ. That's the best work you can do. And Proverbs condemns that as sin. The plowing of the wicked is sin. Thankful this morning that there is righteousness from God available, that it comes with power to walk in holiness, and that the call to put on that breastplate is not asking us to do something that's beyond our abilities. Stand therefore having on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's stand for prayer. It was incorrect. Uh, positional righteousness is sufficient, but it must produce practical righteousness. I would think of the thief on the cross and as one example in Scripture of a man that had no opportunity to exercise practical righteousness, but he, uh, we trust, is experiencing the joys of heaven now solely because of his positional righteousness. So thanks for that. All right, we stand for a dismissal. Benedict.